Well, it's good to see everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3? And I think last time we met, we got as far as verse 6. Let's back up and kind of get a running start at tonight's study. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Just, just kidding. Took you a little while to get that. All right. How about chapter 3, verse 1 then? Okay. All right. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. You know, when Satan told Eve that if she ate the forbidden fruit, she would not surely die. For the devil said to her, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, when the devil told her that, he was essentially telling her the truth. He was essentially telling her the truth. Her eyes would be open. So in that regard, he was telling the truth. And you better get used to this. Satan uses a lot of truth, but mixes into it a little error or fails to tell you the outcome. Here, he was being upfront with Eve. She assumed that the bottom line would be positive and good. My eyes will be opened. Won't that be a good thing? I'll be enlightened to use modern terminology. The problem is Satan told her her eyes would be open, but did not tell her what the outcome would be of that. In other words, it would not be a good thing. It would be something bad. You see, before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were in a state of innocence. They were innocent with regard to what was good, and what wasn't? Like little children, they had to go to their Heavenly Father about every matter, about every situation. This kept them, think about it, in a constant state of dependency upon God to direct them. However, when they ate the forbidden fruit, it was their declaration of independence from God. At that point, they were no longer innocent. They now knew right from wrong. And they grew proud and independent from God in that they now felt competent to make their own decisions as to what was going to be ultimately right or wrong for them personally. Now, that's been the problem, you know, from that time on, all the way down the line with all of Adam's descendants. This idea of independence from God. I want you to understand, in the beginning, man was totally dependent upon God. But of course, after the fall, man began to think he knew better than God what was best for his life. And so in essence, guys, we see here the beginning of the idea. Listen to me now. 
we see here the beginning of the idea of truth being relative based on personal preference and situational ethics. There's no right or wrong, they say. It's whatever the situation warrants because truth is relative. Of course, the idea that man now understood the difference between good and evil implied they, mankind, Mr. and Mrs. Man, Adam and Eve, now had a conscience. You see, before the fall, man did not have a conscience. He was in a state of innocence, as we said, and innocence is ignorance of evil. But after the fall, God gave man a conscience that would help him in making decisions that would be consistent, listen, with God's standards of right and wrong. God could have left us, okay? He could have walked away and just left us to all of our evil inclinations now. But he's so good, he's so gracious, he gave to us a conscience that would at least sound the alarm. See, that's what we need to understand here. God still wants us to walk in his truth, to, to live according to his standards, which are holy and righteous and just, Romans 7, verse 12 tells us. In fact, the Bible says that God has written his laws in our hearts and has given us a warning system that sounds the alarm when we break God's law. That warning system is our conscience, and the alarm is called guilt. But guilt, listen, doesn't feel good, does it? It makes us uncomfortable. It even makes us anxious. The only way to get rid of guilt, guys, is to either get right with God, that's called repentance, or to switch off your conscience altogether. You know, let me read to you what Pastor John MacArthur said, and I've read this before, but uh, he wrote this statement in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, and he gives us some, I think, good insights into this whole process of what it means to switch off our conscience. He said, and I quote, in 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before the impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. Everyone on board was killed. MacArthur said, when I saw that tragic story on the news shortly after it happened, it struck me as a perfect parable of the way modern people treat the warning messages of their consciences. The wisdom of our age says guilt feelings are nearly always erroneous or hurtful. Therefore, we should switch them off. MacArthur asked, but is that good advice? No, it's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. It's like saying if we had the opportunity, we should shut off the pain sensors in our body. I mean, because, you know, you touch a hot stove and it hurts. Wouldn't it be great to turn off all your body's pain? Well, if you live with chronic pain, yes, but I'm talking about just the, the warning system that God has given us. See, if we didn't have that pain mechanism, you put your hand on a hot stove, you wouldn't know it until you started smelling your own flesh burning. By that time, the hand was probably, is probably too far going to be fixed. It's the same thing with our conscience. God has, warn, has given us a conscience to warn us when we are stepping outside the bounds of his laws, his rules. 
His rules are not designed to keep us from having a good life. Just the contrary, they are designed to give us the best life possible, to keep us away from things that would be destructive. Of course, modern man in our culture, it's all about throwing off restraints. It's all about living outside the lines. It's all about having no boundaries. And look at the mess in our society today. Look at the broken lives, the smashed marriages, the broken children, all because we are not allowing our conscience to warn us when we are violating God's laws. And the way you switch off your conscience, guys, is to ignore it, listen, by justifying why what you're doing is not wrong. I mean, everyone's doing it, aren't they? And if it feels this good, could it really be bad? Yeah. Because Satan can manipulate feelings to make good things seem unpleasant and even bad things to seem exciting. Eventually, if a person ignores their conscience long enough, it leads to, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, our conscience being, listen, seared as with a hot iron. Like when you burn yourself very badly and it heals, but you have no feeling in that area because you've destroyed all the nerve endings. That's the same thing you can do with your conscience. You can ignore it. You can justify what, what, why what you're doing is not wrong. It's even maybe God's will. Eventually, you turn your conscience off by way of searing it. So it's no longer, it's insensate. It doesn't sound the alarm anymore when you are living contrary to God's laws. The result is unbridled sin in the absence of all moral restraint. And this is going to reach a crescendo in the last days. In fact, turn to 2 Timothy 3. Paul is talking about the last days in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. He said, but know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. That's the, the evening news. We're seeing it today. This is the society that we're living in. And so we learn that evil will reach its climax in the last days. But guys, it got to start right here in Genesis 3 in the first days of man's existence in the Garden of Eden. Now, Ever since man ate the forbidden fruit and evil entered the world, atheists and agnostics have tried to use the reality of evil to disprove the reality of God. We just saw the movie God's Not Dead not long ago. And you recall how in that movie the atheist professor spoke for all atheists and skeptics when he said, since there is evil in the world, it is proof that a good and loving God cannot exist. The argument goes something like this. If an all-powerful God exists who created the universe. And if he is all good, who put morality into the heart of man to show us that he is a good and moral God, then why does evil exist in the world? Now, apologist Norm Geisler said this, and I quote, he said, this is the most powerful argument ever devised against the existence of God. If God is all good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he's all powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated, Therefore, an all-good and all-powerful God cannot exist. He goes on to, to basically say that he could be partly good and partly powerful, 
but he can't be both all good and all powerful. Because if he was all good, he would eliminate evil. If he was all powerful, he could eliminate evil. But since evil has not been eliminated, no such God exists. And guys, for the atheist and skeptic, they believe this is an airtight argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. But the problem with that argument is that it's built on a faulty assumption that just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, it never will be. See, if the atheist phrased the argument correctly, it wouldn't prove his point. That's why they don't phrase it correctly, because they're trying to stump people. They're trying to, to catch people in a dilemma. I mean, if the atheist said, if there is an all-good God who would eliminate evil, and an all-powerful God who could eliminate evil, and since he hasn't yet eliminated evil, he can't exist. Well, what would be our answer to that? Okay, well, the answer would simply be, just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, doesn't mean it won't be eliminated someday. I mean, if the atheist could say with all certainty, if God is all good, he would. If he is all powerful, he could. Evil has not yet been eliminated, and it never will be. Well, then he's got a good argument for why God, an all-good and all-powerful God, doesn't exist. But see, he doesn't word it that way because he knows that you can't really word it that way because that's the out we have. That's the answer. Just because God is all-powerful and all-good and hasn't yet eliminated evil, that doesn't mean he's not going to to eliminate it someday. And that's what the whole book of Revelation teaches us. And we studied that book in detail a few years ago. The book of Revelation teaches us that God is going to settle accounts someday. That God is a gracious, long-suffering God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's why he doesn't bring judgment immediately. He gives people time to repent. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. I mean, he loves mankind. He wants to save people. It's his desire that all people are saved and brought to the knowledge of the truth. So don't mistake God's grace for weakness. And don't ever mistake the fact that because God doesn't judge evil immediately, he never will, or maybe he even approves that some warped people have come to reason. Geisler said, criticizing God for not Doing it right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. The story isn't over yet, guys. The story is not over yet. And the book of Revelation is going to, you know, it gives us a glimpse at how God is going to end the story. How God is going to deal with people that refuse to accept his gracious invitation to be his children. That's what he's doing. He's inviting all people to be saved, to come to him. And he's giving them, in fact, he's such a loving God, he's going to bring judgment on this world. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you say that God is all loving, but he's going to bring judgment. How does that work? Listen to me. People's hearts have gotten so hard and their hearing has gotten so dull. As C.S. Lewis said, that God whispers in our pleasure but shouts in our pain. When people get that dull of hearing because they're so entrenched in sin, God has got to really yell. And the only way he can get people's attention is if he starts bringing judgment. But as you read the book of Revelation, God brings some judgment backs off. God brings some judgment backs off. What's he doing? He is trying to get people's attention so that they will repent, right? They will repent. That Look, if God has to put somebody through 
very difficult times now for a short period of time to bring them to Christ? I mean, what's better? To taste a little hell on earth now for a short time and then receive Christ through it and have an eternity with God or actually God lets you go on to where you're going and you wind up in the real hell forever. See, God only gives us pain that is proportionate to what we need to wake up, to see the truth, to repent. And yes, God loves this world so much that he is going to bring judgment. Yes, because he's holy, that's true. But I think it was Amos the prophet who said, God in judgment remember mercy. And that's our God. He doesn't ever bring judgment without giving us time to repent and to show mercy. That's who he is. He will bring judgment if he has to. That's not what he wants to do. In fact, we see in the Old Testament, numerous places, in fact, the one that comes to mind is Ezekiel 18, where God is actually pleading with people. He's saying, please turn from your sins. Please turn. Why would you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. Come to me. I will forgive. I'm a merciful God. Come to me. Confess your sins. I will forgive you. That's the heart of our God. Now, at this point, because we've got the atheist over a barrel, he would then counter with the argument, well, if God is all good and all powerful, and he made everything, then where did evil come from? I mean, you know, God must have created evil, which means he can't be all good or evil would not exist. That also sounds like a good argument. Augustine, way back in 400 AD, he said this, and I quote, To say God created everything, evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It is a lack in a thing. Hence, it does not follow that God is the author of evil. Well, Norm Geisler, I think, states it a little more clearly. He said, and I quote, Evil is a privation or a lack. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a kind of parasite. It exists only in something else. The Bible teaches that a good God created a good universe and gave man a good thing called free will, which allowed for the possibility for evil to enter God's universe and corrupt it, end quote. But God made evil possible by giving us a good thing called free will. Just like Henry Ford made every automobile accident in America possible and all the suffering and even the fatalities that go along with it. Now, are we supposed to then say that, that cars are evil along with the man that invented them simply because many people get behind the wheel of a car and don't drive responsibly? Is that really Henry Ford's fault? Is the car evil? Is the inventor evil? Or is the way that people use their freedom irresponsibly? Is that where the evil comes from? Even so, the Bible teaches that this world is not the world God originally created for us to live in. We, when I say we, I'm talking, you know, collectively of the human race, but it really goes back to Adam and Eve, our first parents. They messed it up. They messed it up when they disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the more people act independently, remember I said that was their declaration of independence? The more people act independently from God, we call it rebellion. Rebellion. The worst things have gotten and folks will get. And as we saw in read Revelation, they reach a crescendo during this seven-year period called the tribulation period, 
where man's rebellion reaches its absolute climax. And at one point, the grace and mercy of God ends, and he just wipes out millions and millions of people who have hardened their hearts, who have refused to come to Jesus to be saved, who are defiant rebels who will not repent. What is God supposed to do with people who say, I don't want you, I don't want to bow the knee to you, I want to live my life, I want to rebel, I want to live the way I want to live, even if it's in rebellion against your commandments? I mean, how long does God, a holy, righteous God, how long will he allow sinful, defiant man to shake his rebellious fist in God's face before judgment falls? I mean, that's just the mercy of God and the grace of God. It hasn't happened already. So the first thing man's declaration of independence and enlightenment brought into his life was a sense of guilt and shame. A sense of guilt and shame. We see it here in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The first thing was their eyes were open. That's true. And they brought, it brought into their life a sense of guilt and shame. And because as human beings we can't function in an environment of guilt and shame for too long before wanting to alleviate it, because again, it doesn't feel good, we do the very thing Adam and Eve did. We try to cover our shame and do away with our guilt through the works of our hands. Look, in their case, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. This, whether you realize it or not, guys, was the beginning of religion upon the face of the earth. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And no sooner than we see the beginning of sin upon the earth, we see the beginning of religion. Religion is man's effort to cover his guilt and shame before God through the works of his hands. However, notice God did not accept their coverings. And in verse 21, made them coverings from animal skins. Why? Because fig leaves won't do the job? They won't cover properly? No, it was to communicate to them that it was only through a blood sacrifice that their sins could be covered. Remember what God said in Leviticus 17, verse 11? He said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The word atonement there is a Hebrew word that means to cover. And back in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God allowed a substitute to die for the guilty party. Because the soul that sins shall surely die, God said. But he mercifully and graciously allowed for a substitute to die in their place. And the animal was then sacrificed, the blood was shed, and this allowed God to cover their sin. That's what Yom Kippur is, day of covering, day of covering. But we also see this in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.22 we read, For without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. And a way to get this in your mind's eye, all right? Here Adam and Eve have sinned now. They have a sense of guilt and shame. What do they do? They run out to try to cover their shame through the works of their hands, religion, sew together fig leaves, cover themselves. The fig leaves certainly covered their nakedness, but in God's eyes it was unacceptable. Because he wanted to communicate to them that only through a blood sacrifice could sin be atoned for. And so I imagine that then to, a, to accomplish uh, the acceptable covering for their sin, he took a couple of innocent animals, maybe two animals that they were very close to in the garden. And while they stood there, God killed those two animals right in front of them, took the skins of those animals, and then covered their nakedness with those animal skins. Again, to reinforce the idea 
that sin brings death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of the substitute, but either way, sin brings death. And of course, we know that this looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would shed his blood not just to cover our sins, but to eliminate them completely, to wash them away. His blood was the only blood that could not just cover, but could wipe our ledger clean of all the debt we owed God because of sin. And one last thing, guys, before we move on. Their physical nakedness brought a sense of shame that God didn't say was misguided, as we're hearing today, you know? People today, you know, they want to, if they even believe in God, they want to say, hey, the body's beautiful. God made it. God made We shouldn't be ashamed of our naked bodies. We should celebrate them. Well, God didn't happen to feel that way, did he? When they had a sense of shame and they went and hid themselves and covered themselves with fig leaves, God didn't say, what are you doing? I made the body. It's beautiful. You don't hide it. You celebrate it. No, God covered their nakedness because it was only legitimate in private, not public. And I'm not talking about locker rooms. That's okay, obviously, although, you know, within reason. But you understand. I mean, in the con context of, you know, going out there in public and living your life, nakedness is inappropriate. And God covered them because it was inappropriate for them to be out there in public being naked. You know, the Bible says that open and unashamed flaunting of human nakedness is a sign that a society is getting close to God's judgment and destruction. We read in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, of God denouncing this very thing. He said of Israel, they had really gotten to a place of moral depravity. And God said, they are, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush, God said. Therefore, they will lie among the slaughtered. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. We are living in a time in our nation's history where people are so comfortable with exposing their bodies, listen, that shame is no longer an issue. In fact, if you're modest, there's something wrong with you today. That's how twisted it's gotten. We see this on our beaches, in our movies, and music videos, this flaunting of sexuality, this almost pornographic nakedness. In fact, we do have a nation that is just sick with Pornography has been infected with this, this cancer of pornography. We are a nation ripe for God's judgment because we no longer know how to blush at our sin. But instead, we flaunt it openly in God's face. Let me read you something I've read before. It was taken from a book that I read several years ago. I thought the author nailed it. He said, and I quote, When God fades from a nation's conscience... One can justify almost anything. The author then goes on to talk about how America, how Americans have tried to camouflage what God calls sin with new terminology to kind of soothe our conscience and justify our actions. The author said, God said, thou shalt not kill, but Americans gave murder a new name, a woman's right to choose, and indifferently abort a million and a half babies a year, 60 million, 60 million since Roe v. Wade. God calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism, a social disease. 
God calls it sodomy. We call it homosexuality, an alternative lifestyle. God calls it perversion. We call it pornography, adult entertainment. God calls it immorality. We call it the new morality. And then he concludes by saying, America once legislated against those things that God said to be wrong, but gradually we began to tolerate, then accept, then condone openly, and even promote that which was once unthinkable. The perversion and degradation that once made us blush are now flaunted before the eyes of a nation that was conceived in the fear of God. It has happened little by little, right before our eyes, not because someone forced it on us, but seemingly because we did not care. We just didn't care, end quote. And that's where we are as a nation. May God help us. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, God created us for loving fellowship. And before sin entered the human race, God would come down and he would fellowship with man in the garden in the cool of the day. And God and man enjoyed this incredible communion, fellowship. But sin broke that fellowship and brought about a sense of guilt and shame which caused man to run and hide from God ever since. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Notice that it was God that came looking for man, not the other way around. Sinful man never seeks out God. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verse 11. It is always God that seeks out sinful fallen man. Now, some would say that's not true. I found God. I, I went looking for God. I found God. Well, no, you didn't find God. God wasn't lost. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep. What happened was he was calling your name. You didn't know he was calling your name. You didn't hear your name verbally being called. But you knew he was calling you because you began to have that tug in your heart. Hey, you know what? I'm not living right. I, I see that. I need to get back to church. Or I need to start reading the Bible. Or I need to talk to that Christian at work because I think they have the answer. That was all the Lord calling you and me. But we don't look for God. Paul says that the depraved sinner never goes seeking after God. God is the one who always initiates salvation. God is the one who always goes out looking for the lost sheep. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I have come. So many people have a wrong concept of God. And that is he is out to get them when really he's out looking for them to save them. That's our God. You know, when God said, Adam, where are you? That wasn't the cry of an arresting officer. I believe that was the sobs of a heartbroken father. I wish we could hear the inflection in God's voice in this verse. I'm convinced it wasn't, Adam, where are you? The cry of an arresting officer. It was, Adam, where are you? The sobs of a heartbroken father. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, 
because of that question that God asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Because of this, there are those who believe that God isn't omniscient, all-knowing. And therefore, God doesn't know the future. I mean, if he knew the future, he knew Adam would have eaten the fruit. And he's asking Adam, did you eat the fruit? Obviously, God didn't know. Obviously, then God is not all-knowing. He doesn't know the future. And this leads to doctrines that believe that God you know, has to adjust his plans constantly based on what we do because God doesn't know what we're going to do. So, oh, he did that. i got to adjust my plan and do this now. But the Bible clearly says in various places that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. In fact, Revelation 13, verse 8, I believe, says that even before the foundation of the world, the Father saw Jesus on Calvary's cross. The plan of redemption was already in place. We read in the Bible that he knew from the beginning all the works towards the children of men he was going to do. He knew that from the beginning. In other words, God is omniscient. People say, well, wait a minute. Well, how do you explain this question? God was asking Adam, Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? How do you explain that if God knows everything? Okay, moms, you got a five-year-old. You say to your five-year-old, look, I'm going to go outside and water my flowers. Don't eat any cookies. We're going to eat dinner soon. Who's out there a few minutes watering the flowers? Comes walking in. Here's the chair pulled up against the counter there. She looks, the top of the cookie jar is on the counter. Cookie crumbs all over the counter. She turns to her five-year-old and says, Did you eat cookies when I told you not to? You think she's looking for information? <laughs> what is she wanting from her five-year-old? A what? A confession. A confession. This is what God does all the time. In fact, in Matthew 26... In the upper room, Jesus lays a bombshell on his disciples. At one point in the evening, he says, Look, before the night is out, one of you will betray me. Well, this sent the room into a buzz. Is it me? Is it me? You know, and they're all talking among I think it's you, Peter, you know, that kind of thing. You know, they're all they're all buzzing, you know. Well, Judas, who happened to be right behind the Lord, whispers in his ear, Rabbi, is it me? What did Jesus say? I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. I don't know. He said, you said it. Then, of course, the evening progressed. Judas at one point left, carried out his betrayal. They left the upper room, went to the, uh, the uh, Mount of Olives, where Jesus spent the night in prayer. And then all of a sudden, here come the soldiers with the torches. Judas Iscariot leading them. He comes up to Jesus and gives him a kiss. And what does Jesus say to him in verse 50, Matthew 26? He said, friend, why have you come? He didn't know. Of course he knew. He was giving Judas a chance to confess his sin. And hopefully to repent. Of course he knew that wasn't going to happen. But Judas can't say he didn't give me a chance. Just like when people stand before the Lord. And he has to judge them. None of them can say, Lord, you never gave me a chance. Look, God knew exactly what Adam had done was trying to draw a confession out of him so that God could forgive him, listen, after the sacrifice was made, because without the shedding of blood, but God wanted Adam to confess so that God had a basis for forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this idea that God doesn't know everything, that's ridiculous. That's Psalm 90, verse 8. You spread out our sin before you, our secret sins. You see them all. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are all accountable. God knows. And you know what? Let's turn that around for a minute, okay? God knew every sin we were going to commit, ever going to commit before he even made us. Not only did he still create us, he still invited us to be a part of his family. He adopted us into his family. How many couples, if they knew in advance all the sins a child would commit over the course of their life if they were adopted into their family, I'm wondering how many adoptive parents would go ahead with the adoption? Our God did, because he loves us. And even though we were going to be sinners, even though some of us would be really bad sinners, can I just stop and say this? There are good sinners and there are bad sinners. There are moral sinners and there are immoral sinners. Now, you understand what I mean. I mean. We're all sinners. All sinners go to hell. But we think sometimes if we're kind of good sinners, we'll get to heaven. No, all sinners go to hell. The beauty of it is even the really bad sinners, God is inviting to be a part of his family. So no matter what you've done, it's not beyond the grace of God. Isn't that awesome? It's not beyond God's grace. You know, no one can say, Lord, I know you. your invitation doesn't apply to me because I've been really bad in my life. No. Blood of my son can take care of your sins just like anybody else's. Come to me. Receive my son. His blood will wash your ledger clean. Well, verse 12, Then the man said, Adam, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, Genesis is the book of beginnings. And so here we see the beginning of buck passing. All right? The beginning of buck passing. No sooner than God tried to get man to own up to and admit his sin, than he passed the buck and excused himself, you know, passed the buck uh, on someone else, excusing himself by blaming them. In this case, his wife. But I really get a kick out of this because he didn't leave it with Eve, okay? He actually took it right upstairs to God. Basically, he said, well, Lord, you gave her to me, all right? This is really your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, none of this would have happened. It's amazing how we can blame God for our own sins. It happens all the time, by the way, you know? People commit sin, and when the consequence comes, somehow God's not a good and loving God. Well, you know what? We have to understand that God is a good and loving God. But if we rebel against him, we will reap consequences. So the woman you gave me, it's your fault, God. Let me just say this. God only gives us good things. God only gives us good things. What we do with them or how we let his blessings affect our lives, that's our business. That's our, here's an example. If God gives to you a job in a good company in the accounting department and you use that position to embezzle money from the company, you've taken a good thing and you have turned it into something bad. That's your fault. Or if you own the company, we'll say. And as a Christian, God is blessing the company. 
But now you get a little bit crazy with the money that's coming in. So you start working 16, 18 hours a day to grow the company even more and make more money. And in the process, you lose your marriage and family. You've allowed something good, a blessing from God. You've allowed the devil to corrupt it. And it's become something bad now. But that's not God's fault. He's not responsible for how we use the blessings he gives us. That's the thing we have to understand, right? We have to understand that God is a good God and gives to us good things. Just like God, every day after creation, what did God say? God saw that it was what? Good. After all six days, he stepped back and saw it was all good. So God gave us a good start. But because he didn't want robots, he gave man a good thing called free will. Knowing that we could and would exercise our free will in rebellion against him. And that would bring into the world all kinds of problems and evil and suffering and pain and even death. He knew all that. So why did he allow it? Because as somebody has said, sometimes you have to allow the lesser evil to do the greater good. I mean, you have to put coal under pressure before it can become diamonds. God had to take Israel out of Egypt and take them to the wilderness before they could get to the promised land. Look, this is somebody said this is not the best possible world, but it's the best possible way to reach the best possible world. It's through the suffering now that God weeds out those who want to really obey him and be his children and those that don't. The ones that don't can do their own thing and someday they will stand before God and hear him say, look, what I wanted for, for you was for us to be together for eternity. That was my will for your life. But instead, you rejected that. You wanted to do your own thing. You wanted to live in rebellion against me. And so now God is going to say to them on the day of judgment, I have to honor that choice. Not my will, but your will be done. My will was to save you. You rejected that. So not my will, but your will be done. You wanted nothing to do with me? Now I will give you your wish for all eternity. It's not God's fault that people go to hell. God is trying to keep people from going to hell. But the only way God could gather to himself a group of people who would love him freely and want to obey him was to give us a free will. It's messy. God knew that. But the end result was going to be he was going to gather to himself an entire community. He calls it a holy nation, the church. Well, it's beyond the church. It's believers from all of human history. The church has just been the last 2,000 years. But listen to me, guys. Don't ever think that our God doesn't give good things. He always gives good things. But his good things, his blessings, can be abused. And, it, and even lead to some bad consequences. I think the greatest thing that God has given us that's been a blessing is grace. Grace. We're saved by grace. We stand in an environment of grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is a gift. Salvation was a gift. Every breath we breathe, God, the Bible says, is a gift. Everything we do as Christians for you know that God allows us to do for his glory that will bring... Uh, rewards for eternity it's it's a gift of grace none of us deserve to serve god but here's the thing the devil is always about trying to take god's blessings and twist them into something bad paul said 
in, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, he said, all things are lawful for me. Yeah, because I'm saved by grace. But he then quickly adds, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful in my race for Christ. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. What's Paul saying? He is saying, look, I understand God's grace, but I also understand it can be abused. Just because I'm saved by grace doesn't mean I have the license to go out and sin now. So Paul says, look, I'm very cautious with how I live my life in the freedom Christ has given me. Because I enjoy my freedom so much because of God's grace, I don't ever want to exercise my freedom in such a way as to bring me under the, the control of something else. So can I smoke people? Years ago, I, we had a couple come to the church for the first time. Years ago. And uh, afterward, uh, they came up to me and said, will smoking keep a person out of heaven? I think they said. I said, no, it may get you there a little earlier. <laughs> hey, we're saved by grace. But why would I want to smoke or drink or take drugs? I could do those things and still go to heaven. But Paul says, why would I want to do that? Why, why would I want to exercise my liberty in such a way as that I'm bringing myself under the bondage of something else. Again, grace is an awesome thing, but it can be abused. And this is a lesson we apply every single day of our lives. I could do that, but if I do that, is it going to bring me closer to Jesus or drive me farther from him? And if it's going to take me farther from him, then I'm going to stay away from it. I could do it. But I don't want anything to take me farther from my Lord. I want to do things that will draw me closer to him. So exercise grace wisely. Walk in that grace. Guard it carefully. All right. Well, we are moving uh, through chapter 3 to lightning pace. Uh, there's a lot of other things here. We'll probably get through chapter 3 and into chapter 4 next time. But there's a lot of things that we wanted to kind of focus on in these first three chapters especially. Because they set the foundation for everything else that comes after in the entire Bible. Redemption, uh, culmination of all human history, and so on. So, uh, But we will continue on next week and picking it up in verse 14. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we are not worthy of the least of your mercies, your blessings. Certainly, we are not worthy of grace. But Lord, you lavish it upon us. And through our Savior, you... Offer us salvation by grace. And Lord, we ask for your strength. We ask for your strength, Lord, not to walk, not to um, abuse grace or to exercise our liberty in such a way that we are brought under the control of anyone or anything. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul said. And we are not to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So give us grace, Lord, to understand that by walking closely with you, by obeying all that you have said, we'll maintain a close walk, a deep communion with you. And Lord, that is the best place to be in, close to you, in fellowship with you, the way you designed it from the very beginning. Lord, thank you, and we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.